All right, so we're going to dig into the sacraments. Now, the, the big issue that we want to cover this morning, well, there's several issues, and I really probably should have spread this out over two weeks because as I got into it, man, there's so many things we could cover, so many different issues we could deal with when it comes to these two things. But it really boils down to are the, the sacraments or ordinances, as we like to call them, are they a means of grace or, or a memorial? Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about this means of grace thing uh, over the weeks that we've already covered in the Reformation, but it's going to be really important when it comes to these two particular sacraments, these ordinances. Are they a means of grace or are they a memorial? Okay. So we do know that the Catholic church had seven sacraments, not had, still has seven sacraments. And there are three initiative sacraments, and they are baptism, confirmation, and Holy Communion. Um, Holy Communion being the Eucharist, the Mass. Um, those were your kind of initiatory entry into the church, the Catholic church. But then they had the remaining four sacraments, and those are confession or penance, marriage, holy orders, and then extreme unction or last rites. So those are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Those are the seven sacraments that they believe uh, to this day that you receive grace through in order to uh, live a righteous life so that at some point when you stand before God the Father, he looks at you and he sees inherently within you righteousness, righteousness that deems you worthy of entering into his kingdom. They don't believe in imputed righteousness as we do, where our righteousness comes from outside of us. As Luther said, it's an alien righteousness, not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's imputed to me, and that's what gains me entry into heaven, a relationship with God. It's the righteousness of Christ. So the sacraments are huge to the Catholic community in terms of how you receive grace, how you receive the means for righteousness. So the sacrament, and here's just a basic definition, it's a means of grace that is charismatic in nature and therefore depends upon the Holy Spirit. In a sacrament, it is God who works through the material world by making use of the form, the matter, the intention provided to the church. Now, that's a kind of a wordy definition, but it just reinforces that the sacrament, according to the Catholic Church, is a means by which you receive grace from God, that you receive this power from God to live the life you've been called to live. You have to do it through the sacraments. And so sacraments, the seven sacraments were very, very important in the Catholic church. And as we've said over and over again, every one of these reformers was Catholic. Luther was not a Lutheran. Calvin was not a Calvinist. They were not anything but Catholic. They were born Catholic into the Catholic church. They were baptized as infants. They were trained, taught, catechized in the Catholic church. They were Catholics. And when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door, he was not trying to start a new church. He was trying to reform the church he was a part of. He was a monk. And so they grew up with these sacraments. They grew up with the understanding of what they were all about. And they had heard and read the writings of other theologians and patriarchs of the faith, and they, at least early on, believed in the seven sacraments. And you got to go back and look at some of these guys like Hugo of St. Victor, never heard of the guy before, never read anything he wrote until I started doing this series. But in 1141, he writes this 
document, and in it, he basically comes to a conclusion. He says a sacrament is encompassed not only the sign, but also the physical medium through which grace is communicated. And as a result of that, he comes up with at least 30 sacraments, 30 of them. Now, this is before they got down to seven. And so, at least in his mind, as he looked at the scriptures and as he studied, it's a sign, but it also had a physical medium to it. it there's at least 30 of them in scripture. Well, how do we get down to seven? Well, then along comes in 1152, Peter Lombard, and he writes another document, and he gets the list down to seven. So they go from 30 down to seven. I don't know what the original 30 were. We do know what the seven were. But that asks the question, then how do you get down to two? Well, we're going to see that Luther got it down to three, and in a, in a single document, he went from there's three of them, and by the end of the document, he's down to two. So you see this kind of transition going on as the reformers start studying and start looking and reading the scriptures. But in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, seated at the right hand of the Father and pouring out the Holy Spirit on his body, which is the church, Christ now acts through the sacraments he instituted to communicate his grace. So there it is again. That's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Christ working through what? The, the sacraments to communicate his grace. So holy orders, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, the seven sacraments. Christ acts through the sacraments. Now we talked about last week, the very fact that, you know, in the Catholic church, the Holy Spirit had kind of been kicked to the curb because much of what he was supposed to be doing, the sacraments were doing. And as we said last week, the sacraments were controlled by who? The church, uh, specifically the priests, the prelates, the Pope, the bishops, the cardinals, they controlled the keys. And so you had to get the sacraments through the church, through the priest, to get to the grace that was provided by Christ through the Holy Spirit. You couldn't go directly to Christ. You couldn't go directly to the Holy Spirit. Christ now acts through the sacraments to communicate his grace. In the Catholic Church, they are a means of grace. That's why they are so important. You have to have the sacraments. So how did we get, get down to these two? We as a church, Christ Chapel Bible Church, believes in two sacraments. Now, we call them ordinances. Um, I don't think you're wrong either way. If you call them a sacrament, or you call them an ordinance. We tend to say ordinance, and it's probably more because sacrament is tied more closely to the Catholic Church, and we don't want to confuse the fact that we believe what the Catholic Church believes about the sacraments, so we call them ordinances, but I'm fine either way. The key is, what do they mean? And that's been true of everything we've studied so far. So the reformers, as we've, we've said over and over again, they just tended to go back to the scriptures. Forget what Peter Lombard says. Forget what all these other guys say. What does the scriptures say? What are the sacraments of the church? And they, they found really no biblical justification for seven sacraments. As they began to study them, look at them, understand them. They took the seven sacraments, which they had grown up with. Uh, Martin Luther would have, would have kept virtually all of them except marriage. And then last rites, he hadn't had to do last rites. He wasn't dead. He had probably administered last rites, extreme unction, but he had not yet gotten married, hadn't planned to get married because he was a monk, but he believed in those seven sacraments. But as he went into the scriptures, he found out, I don't find these have biblical basis. So he wrote a thing called the Babylonian captivity of the church, the Catholic church. 
This is a document that he wrote pretty early on. And it was his view of the Catholic Church as he began to examine some of the doctrines of the church, the teachings of the church, the actions of the church. And this is what he says about the sacraments. He says, at the outset, I must deny that there are seven sacraments and hold for the present to be but three, baptism, penance, and the bread. These three have been subjected to a miserable captivity by the Roman Curia, and the church has been deprived of her liberty. So he says there's not seven, there's only three, and he includes penance because as a monk, a priest, he would have put high priority on forgiveness of sin. But by the time you literally, I, I printed out the document and I read through it, and it's, it's, a, it's a slog, okay? It's like reading Old English. You, you, it, it, I wouldn't recommend it. But as I read through it, by the time he gets to the end, he's changed his mind. And here's what he says. Nevertheless, it has seemed proper to restrict the name of sacrament to those promises which have signs attached to them. The remainder, not being bound to signs, are bare promises. Hence, there are, strictly speaking, but two sacraments in the church of God, baptism and the bread. So baptism and communion or the Eucharist. So by the time he gets to the end of this document, he's convinced himself that there's really only two. There's not seven and there's not three, there's just two. And that would become the basis on which the other reformers would place their thoughts when it came to the sacraments. There's just two. And it's what we hold to today. And uh, most Protestant churches hold to two sacraments, the Lord's table and baptism. And so that's kind of who we are. That's what we believe. That's, that's what we believe. But we're going to find out that that doesn't necessarily, we all believe the same thing about those two sacraments. Now, last week I gave you a document that showed you kind of the timeline and then a, a very simplified map of the kind of the family tree of the denominations. And the truth is, it's extremely complicated. I had one guy last Thursday night give me another one that it literally is shaped like a tree. I can't even understand it because it just gets so complicated, you know, where all these denominations come from. But the truth is, what we begin to see now as we get into this particular topic is the reformers are beginning to part ways. Initially, it was reformers against the Catholic Church. Now it's going to be reformers against reformers because they're beginning to debate and disagree about these things. And so John Calvin, he comes along and he says, in regard to our sacraments, they present Christ the more clearly to us, the more familiarly he has been manifested to man through the sacraments. Ever since he was exhibited by the Father, truly as he had been promised. For baptism testifies that we are washed and purified. The supper of the Eucharist or the Lord's table that we are redeemed. So he agrees with Luther and says, there's just two. There's baptism and there's the Lord's table. Well, are they a means of grace? This would be the next big issue. If there's just two, okay, we've narrowed it down. Are they like the first seven means of grace? And this would become a point of contention. Were they a means of, a, of getting grace from God? The Catholic Church clearly taught that they were. That's how you gained the merit you needed, the power you needed to do the things you needed to do so that you could be declared by God righteous in his sight. So if you go to this particular website, it's a Catholic website, catholic.org. This is their encyclopedia. God has appointed external visible ceremonies as the means by which certain graces are to be conferred on men. 
then in order to obtain those graces, it will be necessary for men to make use of those divinely appointed means. What are they talking about? The seven sacraments. You want grace? You got to go through the seven sacraments. If you don't do the seven sacraments, you don't get grace. That's why excommunication was such a big deal within the Catholic Church. If you were excommunicated, you couldn't take the sacraments. You couldn't participate in the sacraments. If you didn't do the sacraments with the right attitude, you didn't get the grace. So if you didn't take the Lord's table uh, in the right attitude, you didn't get the grace. If you didn't do these things with the right attitude, you didn't get the grace. And so for the Catholic Church, they were means of grace. Now remember, all of these guys are Catholics. They were raised Catholic and they're having to wrestle with, I've been told all my life, I've even taught all my life in regards to someone like Luther that they are a means of grace. Now he's having to wrestle with, well, are they? And there may be some guys in the room today are going to have to wrestle with what you think you know about baptism, what you think you know about your baptism, what you think you know about the Lord's table. What is it? And see, these guys were at least willing to examine what the scriptures say and change their mind based on scripture. Some of us have been taught things all our life based on the denomination we grew up in and we adhere to it. It's like the conversation I had a couple of Thursday nights ago with the, the lady who comes and sits and listens to me teach uh, out in the lobby of the den and she had a problem with the two articles I gave on basically, do we choose or does God choose us? And she came up and says, you know, this is this is causing a divorce in my family. You know, my husband and I keep fighting over this. And I said, well, what do you believe? And she goes, well, I know what I believe and I'm right. And I said, well, why do you believe what you believe? She goes, my, my old pastor told me this. I said, well, forget what your old pastor told you. What does the scripture say? And she goes, well, I don't know. And so we start talking about scripture. And she goes, well, I never knew it said that. And, and that's what we need to wrestle with. What does the scripture say? So again, they go on in the same document. It's fitting that divine wisdom should provide means of salvation. What is it talking about? The seven sacraments. They are a means of salvation for men in the form of certain corporeal, sensible signs, which are called sacraments. In the Catholic Church, the seven sacraments are a means of grace, but ultimately they're a means of what? Salvation. If you don't go through that process, remember what we said about baptism in the Catholic Church, and we're going to hit on it again today. If you are baptized as an infant into the Catholic Church, you are baptized into a relationship, not only with the church, but with Christ and God the Father. All your sins are washed away. It is salvation. It is the beginning phase of your salvation. Now, we, we said all along, their view of justification is different than ours. Ours is a one-time event. I'm justified as soon as I place my faith in Christ and I get his righteousness and I'm from that point forward just in his eyes, not based on anything I do from that point forward. In their mind, baptism begins the journey and then the sacraments are the means by which they're like the, the gas stations we go to along the journey to get the power to keep living the life so that ultimately sometime, either at the end of life or the end of purgatory, I can stand before God as what? Just. So these things were huge to the Catholic Church. And the Reformers, being good Catholics, believe these things until they started looking into the scriptures and they would eventually reject the view of means of grace, means of salvation. 
They're not how you achieve righteousness. When we take the Lord's table at Christ Chapel, it's not a means of you getting more righteousness. It's not a means of you getting uh, more grace. When we uh, baptize someone in our church, it's not part of your salvation. It's not necessary for salvation. Now, that's what we believe is Christ Chapel. There are other churches who don't believe that. We do not believe salvation is tied to baptism. Baptism comes after salvation. And that's going to be key as we dig into this this morning. The reformers did not believe the sacraments were salvific. That's just a $100 word that just means they don't have anything to do with salvation. They don't get you saved. They don't make you more saved. It's not the reason we have them. It's not the reason we do them. They're not salvific. Luther said this, they were intended to strengthen the faith of the believer. So when we take communion, it is to strengthen our faith, not to give us faith, not to make us Christ-like, not to make us right with God. Zwingli, his view was they did not bestow grace, but were reminders of the grace already present. See, when I take the Lord's table, I'm not getting more grace because I got all the grace I needed when I accepted Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the grace received. It's to remind me of all that he's done. And we'll talk more about that in a second. For Calvin, they were the visual aids to the gospel truths preached from the pulpit. So they reinforced what the pastor, the preacher, the priest would say from the pulpit. These visible signs were reminders. Baptism, the Lord's table. See, when we watch a baptism, when I do a baptism, I've already been baptized. But when I do a baptism, it's a reminder to me when I lower that person under the water and I bring them back up, it has significant meaning, not only for that individual, but for me and for every other person in the room who is in Christ. Because it's a reminder of what we've all experienced, the death and then the being raised to new life, the cleansing of sin, that's what baptism's all about. So they're reminders, they're visual aids more than anything else. Oh, great, my uh, computer's gonna go dead. Hang on just a second, guys. So the sacraments were seals. They're seals of grace in our hearts, and this is Calvin again, to render it more authentic, for which reason they may be termed visible doctrine. They're like lessons. When we baptize, they're a lesson. They're not doing anything to the individual. They're not bestowing anything. They're visual lessons for everyone watching. That's why we're so strong about baptism because we want people to follow Christ in baptism because it is a visual reminder to everybody in the room what we've all partaken in and share in. That's why we encourage people to do it in front of others. It is a display of your faith, and we all get to watch. And it's always kind of fun when, when I get to do baptisms, and I really love doing baptism, baptisms because watching the face of the person coming up, up, up out of the water, you don't get that privilege, but it is so fun to watch. I've never had anybody come up disappointed. Going, yeah, I can't believe they did that. You just got my hair wet. You got water at my nose. I've never had anybody complain. I have had a few say you held me under too long, but um, I'm a firm believer is the longer you're under, the, the greater it takes. Um, so don't let me baptize some of you guys. 
but it's just fun to watch their face and to see their families, to watch the faces on their families and to see even other believers in the room because it reminds them of when they did the same thing. So it's a demonstration. Luther said, it's the word that makes this a sacrament and distinguishes it from ordinary bread and wine so that it is called and truly is Christ's body and blood. See, this is, this is huge. This is significant for all of us in the room. Why do we do these things? What's the purpose behind them? So let's look at communion. The sacraments are going to become a dividing line, okay? With, just between the, the reformers. Let's put the Catholic Church aside for a minute. Now we're going to have to talk about what do, the, what do the reformers believe about this stuff. And they're going to begin to disagree over certain aspects of these things. And communion is going to be a key one. So you have the Eucharist, the table, communion, the Lord's Supper. It's got a lot of different names. It was the Eucharist for the Catholics. We call it typically the Lord's Table or communion. And it's going to become like ground zero within the Reformation. What do we believe about these things? The bread and the wine. Well, the key phrase that's going to come out is this one. This is my body. And this is where Luther and Zwingli are going to go to fisticuffs over these four little words. This is my body. Luther took it literally. Now, remember, he's a Catholic. He's a monk. He's been raised, reared, trained, educated through Catholic means. And so he still looks at this and he says, he said, this is my body. He meant it. And that's going to be significant. Zwingli's going to look at it figuratively. He didn't literally mean this is my body. He was speaking figuratively. And so the two of them are going to go from being pretty close friends to being enemies and, and really debating one another and even casting dispersions about one another. So in Matthew 26, 26, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now remember the context, it's the Lord's Supper, but it's the first Lord's Supper because it's really the Passover. He's in the upper room with his disciples, taking the last Passover with the disciples, and he's taking the elements they grew up with as part of the Passover meal, and he's giving them new meaning. All these guys were Jews. They, were, they had been raised in Jewish homes. They would have known what the Passover was. Now Jesus is taking these things and giving them a different meaning. And he takes the bread at one point in the meal. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. Then he's going to take the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now he does not explain at this moment what he means. And it's interesting in the gospels, you don't see the disciples wrestling with what does he mean? And they were typically, typical, it was typical of them to go, do you have any idea what he just talked about? Was he telling us to eat his body, drink his blood? What was he? You don't see that. And part of it is because he had already discussed this earlier in John chapter six. And I'm going to read this to you real quickly, but they've already kind of broached this topic in John chapter six. Jesus says this, he's talking about bread. He's talking about living bread and manna. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the, blood, the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Then he goes on, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, that's just not t- t- talking about the 12. It's all the people following him. They're going, what the heck is he talking about? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they'll begin to move away from him. Well, yeah, this is weird. But see, the disciples are already getting a glimpse into what he's talking about. So I think by the time they got to the Lord's table, as part of the Passover meal, it wasn't an issue for them. I don't think they saw this as the literal body and blood of Christ. I think they got it as symbolic, as that entire Passover meal was symbolic. Okay, they got symbolism. We have a hard time with symbolism. We're literalists. We, we don't always get symbolism because that's not our culture. It was their culture. So these two words, this is, are going to be critical. So the Catholic Church comes out of that with transubstantiation. It's almost impossible to spell. It's really hard to say. And it's even harder to understand. Transubstantiation. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as the conversion of the substance of the Eucharistic elements into the literal body and blood of Christ at consecration, only the appearance of the bread and wine still remaining. So here's what the Catholics believe to this day. When the priest consecrates the elements, the bread and the wine, they literally, when you ingest them, become the body and blood of Christ, regardless of how they taste and what they look like. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle, okay? And I'm not going to get into it because it is so philosophical, I can't even understand it, let alone explain it to you. But it's an Aristotelian idea that they become something other than what they appear. And that's what the Catholic Church believed. That's what the Catholic Church taught. Well, that's a problem. Does the bread, as the Catholic Church teach, become the literal body of Christ? Does the wine become the literal blood of Christ? And what's really interesting about this is in the Catholic Church, in Luther's day, the peasants were not allowed to take the the wine because the priest was afraid they'd spill it and they would waste some of Christ's blood. So they can only take the bread and only the the priest could take the blood, the wine. And so this, this idea of it being literal was very, very real to them. And they get it from John 6, 53, which we just read. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. And so for them, it was a salvific deal. You were ingesting the blood and body of Christ again. And in a real sense, it was a re-what? Sacrifice of God or Christ again. They were re-sacrificing him again so that you could take of him. Well, Luther comes up with, and he didn't coin the term, but it became consubstantiation. Con meaning basically with. The real presence, namely that the body and blood of Christ are present in the communicant, in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. Once again, this stuff is so difficult to understand. And it's basically a move away from transubstantiation and just saying it's not literal body and blood of Christ. It's just there spiritually. And you can see where that's a little bit easier to digest, a little bit easier to handle. And part of the reason they would say this is that, well, Christ is present everywhere, so why can't he be spiritually present in the elements? Well, what the Bible tells me is that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he exists in me in the form of the Holy Spirit. Christ's body is not everywhere. He is 
omnipresent in the sense of his spirit, but he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, the scripture tells me. So he's not present in those elements. He's present in the believer in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so even this begins to break down. Luther would say his body is really present with the bread and the wine, and it's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And then he would say, it's so hard to understand, it's so mysterious, we'll never comprehend it. We just need to accept it. And when he and Zwingli began to debate over these things, it's really fascinating to read their debates because Luther would always go back to, you'll never understand it because it's a mystery. And Zwingli would say, yeah, but the scriptures say. And Luther would say, it doesn't matter, it's a mystery. And there are things that are a mystery, guys. The Trinity is a mystery. I can't explain it, but it's clearly taught in the Bible. This becomes a little bit harder to defend, I believe, that it's even in a spiritual sense that Christ is present in the elements. So Zwingli disagrees, and he's the one that began to move down the path of it's a memorial. And part of the reason he would say this is that it was instituted with the disciples in that upper room with the Passover meal before he died. So here's Jesus standing with them going, this is my body. No, his body was right there. His body had not yet been broken. His body had not yet had blood spilled out of it. When he held up the cup, this is my blood. No, his blood was still coursing through his veins. They did not ingest the body of Christ because the body of Christ was standing right in front of him. It's a memorial. They couldn't have consumed his still living body or drunk his blood because it was still in his body. It had not yet been spilled, and that was only hours away. Talk amongst yourselves. I love technology. You're not talking. You're staring at me. You're making me really uncomfortable. So do you see why this is so important? How the disciples are beginning to wrestle with these incredible issues, or not the disciples, but the reformers are wrestling with these issues over, is it the body of Christ? Is it the blood of Christ? Is it, are we ingesting Christ? Is it a means of grace or not a means of grace? Is it just a memorial? And see, today, guess what? We're still wrestling with these things, right? We're still arguing over these things. And I've read I can't tell you how many articles I've read just over the last three or four days on this very topic that we don't agree. We still wrestle. We still struggle with these things. And I'm going to tell you what we believe as a church. You may be sitting out there and you may totally disagree with me. And you know what? That's perfectly okay. And we don't need to go fight out in the parking lot. But what we both need to do is to continue to wrestle with what do the scriptures say? What does it teach? It's interesting that later on, Paul would write these words. Now, where did Paul get these words? This is Paul writing about the taking of communion within the church in Corinth. And he's writing long after Jesus and the disciples ate in that upper room and he was not there, but he got his information from the Holy Spirit, and I think he got it also from apostolic sources. Because he says, on that night, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you, what? Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Take the bread. He said, do what you're about to do in order to remember me. 
Remember what I did. Remember what I'm going to do. That's what he was telling the disciples. Remember, he hadn't died yet, but he was getting ready to. And so he's telling them, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. How about with his blood? Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me. It's a remembrance. It's a a memorial. We take the Lord's Supper to remember. It's a visual reminder of his death, his burial, his suffering, but also to remind us that he rose again. They're not a means of grace. They don't make us more saved, less saved, but they do remind us. Now, I had a guy uh, write me yesterday and and, uh, asked me a great question. I haven't had a chance to write him back, but it has to do with why don't we at Christ Chapel take communion more often? We take it the first Sunday of the month. Some churches take it every week. The scriptures do not give us a clear indication of how often to take communion. So if your church you grew up in took it every week, great. We as a church decided early on we were going to do it once a month. Part of the reason for that is that we don't want it to become rote. We don't want it to become ritualistic. How many times a year did the Jews take the Passover? Once. It's not the number of times we take it. Because look at what it says here. Jesus says, do this, to, or, do this to remember me as often as you drink it. He doesn't say every week that you do this in your worship service. He says, as often as you do it, drink it, take it, eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Now, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians in this passage, he's hammering them because they're taking communion and they're doing it wrong. They're doing it with wrong hearts and wrong attitudes. He says, some of you come to this gathering, this love feast, and you, they would share a meal. They would also take communion. But he said, some of you who are rich are bringing food for yourself, but you won't share it with the poor. And some of you are coming, and rather than remembering Christ, you're getting drunk on the wine. And they had completely missed the point. So we could have it every week. We could have it every day. But the real point is, Are you doing it with the right heart? Are you doing it for selfish reasons? Are you doing it to remember Christ? So for us as a church, we just made a decision that we were going to do it the first Sunday of every month. Could we do it every week? Yes. Could it become ritualistic? Yes. It can become ritualistic when you do it once a month. And I'm telling you, I've taken it many, many times where it was nothing but a ritual. Here comes the bread and the elements. Here we go. Wish there was more juice. Wish the bread was bigger. You know, we've had people flip out in our church because we now combine the cups. You know, and I had a lady come up to me and goes, why don't you, uh, why don't you do the bread in your church? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you don't, you don't give the bread in your church. And I said, no, we do. And she goes, well, I didn't get any. I said, well, did you see the two cups? No. Oh, well, there's two cups and the bread was in the bottom one. She was, she was embarrassed and also a little chapped. Um, <laughs> But it reminded me that we do have to explain this sometimes, that there's two cups. Um, So it's a memorial. It's a reminder. Remember me. So we see it as a commemoration, Uh, a memorial, and it's really a celebration for me. 
It's celebrating something that happened. It's remembering what Christ has done, and it's very similar to the Passover. Why did the Jews and why do the Jews celebrate the Passover? It's a remembrance. You know, it's really interesting. All throughout the Old Testament, God was always telling them, remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, remember. Even when they got in the promises, hey, when you get into the promised land and you start living in these houses you didn't build and you start gleaning wine from, you know, vines you didn't plant and you get wheat from fields you didn't plant, don't forget because here's what's going to happen. You're going to think we did this. And see, the Lord's table is a reminder to me that I didn't do this. His body was broken, his blood was spilled, and I should never forget that. You know, in Exodus 12, 11, it says, these are your instructions for eating this meal, the Passover meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, carry your walking stick in your hand, eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. And then he goes on to say, this is a day to remember from generation to generation. Then he goes on and says, celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. The Lord's table, we believe, is a reminder every month of what Christ did for you, for us. And we need that reminder because sometimes we start thinking we did it. I'm the one. I'm the one that brought righteousness. I'm the one who lives the godly life. I had the quiet time. I went to Bible study. I memorized a verse this week. And we start getting cocky and the Lord's table reminds you that, no, don't get cocky because without him, you have nothing. So we don't believe it's a means of grace. But what about baptism? Here's a painting from the 16th century of a, a baby being baptized. There's two issues that we got to deal with when it comes to baptism, who and how. Who gets baptized and then how. And I'm going to try to deal with both of those, but we'll see how it goes. Well, we know the Catholic Church then and now baptizes infants. Um, this gets passed over. Lutheran churches baptize infants. Presbyterian churches baptize infants. Uh, totally different reasoning behind why they do that, and we're going to touch on that. Luther would keep the practice of baptizing infants. Remember, he grew up Catholic. He was baptized as an infant. He would keep that, but he would begin to see different explanations behind it. Differences would arise as he began to look at the scriptures and he began to wrestle with these things. And so within the Catholic and what eventually became the Lutheran church, here's the key differences. Catholics, it purges original sin. When you take your child there and you have to be a believer, at least one of the family, uh, the parents has to be a believer. You bring that child and that child's inherited, imputed, original sin from Adam gets washed away. Okay. That's what happens. It removes their sin nature. It begins the process of their salvation and provides power to cooperate from that point forward in salvation. That's why the Catholic Church puts a high um, emphasis on confirmation and catechism, that you have to, just because that child's been entered into the family of God, they still have to be taught the means of grace. They have to go through the sacraments. They're on a journey. It's not a guarantee, but they are in the family. And just like everybody else, you can lose that. You can lose your salvation. They have to continually work on it. They have to be catechized. They have to be taught. Well, the Lutherans, because of the teachings of Luther, admit that children of believing parents, it, it admits children of believing parents into the family of God. They are initiated through baptism into the family of God. It's not salvific. And 
There may be Lutheran churches that believe it is. I don't think that's true. Um, Presbyterians don't believe it's salvific. It is an entry into the family of God, and they tie it to the covenant, the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant. In the Old Testament covenant, you had circumcision. They believe, in Presbyterian churches in particular, that baptism is the new sign of the new covenant. Circumcision, old covenant, baptism, new covenant. You circumcised infants, you baptize infants. It's tied to the covenant. It's part of their theology, okay? We are not covenant theologians. We, we don't have a covenant theology here at Christ Chapel. We believe in the covenants, but we don't believe as the Presbyterians do. And that's going to be a significant difference in how we view this. So it continues the covenant of circumcision. I'm not going to get into all that this morning because it's way too deep. If you want some great articles, email me and I will inundate you. Okay, and then you can wrestle with it. But this is going to become a real point of debate and division. Four different divisions would arise over this. You're going to have the Anglicans, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anabaptists. Okay? All of these groups are starting to percolate up to the surface because as they begin to look at these doctrines, they begin to have differences. And all of those four, but the Anabaptists, would adhere to and advocate infant baptism, much along the lines of the Lutherans. And to this day, there are churches that still baptize infants. Many of you were baptized as infants. And my hope this morning is that I want you to wrestle with, what do you believe about baptism? I, I've interviewed people over the years who want to join our church. I ask them about their, their salvation experience, and they tell me. And then I say, have you ever been baptized? And they say, yeah, I was, I was baptized as a child. And then we'll have to talk about, okay, well, is that the same as what the Bible seems to teach about salvation? And then they're going to have to wrestle with that. It has nothing to, we don't require you to get baptized to be a member of this church. Now, some people struggle with that, but we don't believe salva, uh, baptism is, is necessary for your salvation. We do believe you should be baptized after salvation, not before it. And that's where we differ with the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and Presbyterians in particular. So none of the others believed it to be salvific. Okay? It didn't save you. That's the difference between Protestants and Catholics. In Calvinism, Calvin defended the baptism of infants, believing that children of the godly are born members of the church by virtue of the hereditary nature of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision having been replaced in the new covenant with baptism as a sign. So Calvin believes you should baptize children. Now, part of what you've got to understand in this day and age, the 16th century in particular, they, they believed that the church and the state should be one. They, they had grown up in a culture where it was the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor was a Catholic. The pope was a Catholic. All the leadership in your town were Catholics. The Catholicism, the church controlled everything. We don't live in that context, right? We don't, there's no church that controls anything in our culture. It, but they believed it should, that the two should be linked. And so when you were born into the Holy Roman Empire, you were born a Catholic as part of the Holy Roman Empire. So it had a church-state relationship built into it that Calvin and others would kind of buy into. Lutheran, well, the faith of the church family could not, be direct, could not directly save the infant, but their faith would later help the child to grow in knowledge and receive her own faith from God. Again, infant baptism signifies entrance of the child into the church where she can be instructed, he or she. 
So the Lutherans believe you baptize the child into the family of God, and then the church is responsible for leading them on their faith journey. Lutheran churches still believe that. Presbyterian churches believe that. Uh, we do not. We do not go down that road. We do not go, go down that path because we don't believe it's what the scriptures teach. Well, then you have the Anabaptists arise. And Anabaptism means basically rebaptizers. It was a derogatory term. It's not the term they call themselves, but this was a group of kind of disconnected individuals who began to gather around this idea of baptism after salvation. And Dr. John Hanna, who we've had here at the church over the last weeks talking about the Reformation, he writes this, people are born into the world lost and need to be regenerated. One does not enter the church as a citizen as one enters the state. In the latter one, in the latter one is naturally born into it. In the former one, is spiritually born into it. The state is not the church. The church is not the state. So John Hannah is just trying to help us to understand that we're not like it was in the 16th century. We're not like it was during the Holy Roman Empire. You are not born into Christianity. It's a decision you make. It's, it's a point in time in your life. You're not born into this thing called the family of God. My children were not born into the church of God. My children were born into life, but they were not born into spiritual life. So we did not baptize our children. All of my children eventually came to faith in Christ, but it was later on in their lives where they had the ability to hear the message of the gospel, receive the message of the gospel, and accept Jesus Christ and follow him in baptism, which they all eventually did. Now, the Anabaptists, like every other group during the Reformation, had their confessions. This is theirs. It's the Schleitheim, I believe that's how you say it. I'm not German, but I think that's how it's said. They said, baptisms shall be given to all those who have learned repentance and amendment of life and to all those who walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and wish to be buried with him in death. This excludes all infant baptism. So here come the Anabaptists, and of the four groups, Anglicans, Lutherans, Calvinists, they're the only ones who say no infant baptism. Now, what do you think that did for them in terms of popularity? Persecuted, big time persecuted. They were hated by the Catholics already because they're reformers, now because they reject infant baptism, but they're also hated by the reformers because guess what? They just rejected infant baptism, which they all, we just read, adhered to. But they come along and say, no, we believe in believer baptism or believer's baptism. That's what we believe as a church. And they believe the sign should always follow the thing it signifies. If you're going to be baptized, it ought to be a sign of something that's already happened. That's what we believe. When we baptize people, we typically say this is an external um, expression of an eternal, internal reality. I've already accepted Christ, I believe in him, and now I'm following him in baptism. It's not done before. And again, there's all kinds of scriptural debate on this between the different camps, but we believe as the Anabaptists, we do not descend from Anabaptists, if you go look at the family tree, but we do believe what they believe about baptism. And they would become heretics, at least labeled heretics. They were labeled extremists by Calvin and others. They were seen as dangerous, and yet they had all started out as reformers, but they began to part ways. You know, they're, one of my best friends in life uh, used to be a member of this church, and um, 
He and I agreed on many, many things, but he became increasingly more reformed in his theology. And I believe I'm reformed in my theology, but he began to go off more towards uh, Presbyterianism. And it got to the point where he and I had to sit down one day at lunch and I said, I think it's time for you to leave. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, because you're very unhappy here. You don't agree with what's preached from the pulpit. You don't agree with much of our doctrine. You believe in infant baptism. We don't. You're not going to change our church. So I think you probably need to go where you will feel more comfortable. Otherwise, you're going to become a thorn in the flesh of Christ's chapel. And that's not good for either one of us. And he's now an elder in a Presbyterian church. We do not agree on this. We talk about it. We've debated it. He throws out his passages. I throw out mine, and we walk away friends. But we've at least got to realize that there's going to be disagreements, guys. There were then. There are now. I'm not going to go nail my friend to a post and burn him at the stake over this issue. That's what was happening to these people. They wouldn't get burned most of the time. What they would do is the reformers would take them and the Catholics would take them. And here's a, a depiction. They would bind them up and they say, you want to be rebaptized? We'll rebaptize you. And they throw them in the water. They would weight them with rocks and they would drown them. Reformers were doing this. This was not Catholics all the time. This was reformers killing other reformers over this issue of baptism. And three reformers, Andreas Karlstad, Thomas Munzer, Conrad Grable, if you want to learn about these guys, you can. They would be believers in believer baptism. And Karlstad in particular started out a friend of Luther, and they became enemies for all intents and purposes over this issue of baptism. It was huge. And the Anabaptist movement, in spite of the persecution began to grow and it began to spread and it would influence others over this issue of baptism. But we still debate this today. We know that infant baptism is still practiced today. Many of you were baptized as infants and have never been baptized as an adult. And I, as a good pastor of Christ Chapel, would strongly encourage you to prayerfully consider being baptized as an example of following Christ in baptism. When you were baptized as an infant, you had no clue what happened. You had no part in that decision. It was the decision of your parents. You had no faith at that time. You didn't exhibit faith. You placed no faith in Jesus Christ. You didn't understand the gospel. You had never heard the gospel because you didn't have comprehensive abilities. Now you do. So I would encourage you to be baptized. We still have transubstantiation, consubstantiation. They're still believed in by the Catholic Church and many Reformed churches. But here's where we stand. We are memorialists. We believe these two, doc these two, two doctrines of the uh, baptism and the Lord's table are commemorations. They are not a means of grace. They're reminders of what's already taken place. That's our stance. That's what we believe. And we feel like we can back it up with scripture. We believe baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Communion is a visual reminder of the gospel. In communion, Jesus' body has already been broken. We don't need to break it again. His blood has already been shed. It doesn't need to be shed again. I don't need more of Jesus ingested. I got all the Jesus I need in placing my faith in him. Romans 6.10 tells me that he died once for all. He doesn't need to die over and over again, as the Catholic Church seems to teach. The Lord's table reminds us that his sacrifice was enough. 
The Lord's table is not another re-sacrifice of Jesus. It, he did it, and it's done, and it's a reminder of what has been done. And so we need to remember that. Baptism is an expression of our faith. It's not a means to it. It follows salvation. It should not precede it. It's a willful act of obedience, not passive submission. If you baptize an infant, I've, I've, I've never attended a baptism of, of, a, of an infant, but I guarantee they probably never fought their way out of it. They probably never said, hey, hey, I don't want this. No, because they're submissive. They're passive. They play no role in it. It's based on the faith of the parent. But we're to follow the example of Jesus himself. Matthew 3, 13 through 17, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him, Jesus, and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. I think that term brings, brings me great joy had everything to do with his baptism. Here he was, the incarnate son of God in the form of a man, and he was going through baptism. Did he need baptism? No. Had he sinned? No. Did he need remission of sins? No. But he did it, and it brought great joy to his father. So here's your questions. I want you to take a few minutes to discuss your baptism. Were you baptized as an infant, a young child, or an adult? Would you consider your baptism to be believer baptism? And guys, don't, if, if somebody says, well, I was, I was sprinkled as a child, don't roll your eyes and go, oh, God, heretic. Um, <laughs> that's their story, okay? It's their story. Let them have it. But talk about it. What was yours? Why would following Jesus' example of baptism bring great joy to the Father just as it did when Jesus was baptized? See, here's what I want to tell you. If you have never followed him in believer's baptism, you were sprinkled as a child, dipped as a child, whatever as a child, and you do this, I believe it will bring great joy to God the Father. And I would strongly encourage you to consider it. And if you want to talk more about it, I would love to talk about it with you. If you would like me to baptize you, I would love to baptize you. And depending on who you are, I will hold you under longer or shorter, you know, based on that. Believer baptism is a one-time event, but the Lord's table is ongoing. How should these two memorials of what Christ has done impact our lives on an ongoing basis? So those are your three questions. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for these two wonderful ordinances. Lord, I know in my life I take them too much for granted. And I don't even treat them as memorials. I just treat them as something we do. And they come, they go, I take it, and I move on with my life. But Father, these are meant to be reminders of the incredible gift that we have received, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. And, and, and then, Father, the idea that his body was broken for me and that when I accepted him, him into my life, I literally ingest Christ. And he comes to live within me in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it, it paints a picture of total dependency. I cannot live without him. He is the bread of life. I need him every day. And so, Father, thank you for these ordinances. I pray for the men in the room that you would bless the time around the tables, guide them, direct them, encourage them. And, Father, if there's any man that you feel and desire to be baptized, would you place that on his heart? Not, not from the conviction of some other man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.